God's way of life is a mystery to billions of people around the world. Why? Because Satan has deceived the whole world. We know that, Revelation 12, 9. And yet God is witnessing to the world. How is he witnessing to the world? Well, through the creation, as he says in Romans 1 and verse 20, that even the creation reveals the very Godhead of the divinity, the divinity of God, and that they are without excuse. And God also is witnessing to the world through the preaching of the Gospels, it says in Matthew 24, 14. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Christ came preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. And he also reveals special mysteries to his disciples. Let's turn to Matthew, the 13th chapter. Matthew 13 gives us several parables. The first parable is the parable of the sower. And again, it shows that when the gospel is preached, sometimes it's accepted temporarily, but then the cares of this world and temptations just distract the person and he no longer continues. Some of the seeds fall on fertile ground. It says in verse 8, But others fell on good ground and yielded a crop, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. And hopefully most of us are bearing that kind of fruit. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Then we get into the section starting from verse 10, the very purpose of parables. And I was taught as a young boy the same thing. Well, what is the purpose of parables? Well, so you can understand better. The disciples came to him, verse 10, and asked him, Why do you speak to them in parables? He answered and said to them, Because it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been given. Sometimes we've read over that many times. But he's saying he has given us the understanding of the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. And it's not been given to others. Do you understand just how blessed you are to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven? Along with that privilege, of course, comes a responsibility. We need to treasure the truth live the truth, and, of course, speak the truth. A few weeks ago, I gave a sermon titled, Are You a Faithful Steward? I asked, Are you a faithful steward of your possessions? Are you a faithful steward of your finances? Are you a faithful steward in preparing for emergencies? Are you a faithful steward in your relationships? And, of course, we heard the sermonette by Mr. Jonathan McNair, how to restore relationships, how to build relationships, and how to destroy relationships. Are you a faithful steward in your relationships? Are you a faithful steward of the environment? And we've encouraged you to start planting gardens with the price of food and with the problem of drought in many parts of the country. Are you a faithful steward of God's truth? Those are the questions I asked a few weeks ago. So today I want to ask you the question, are you a faithful steward of God's mysteries? Here we saw in Matthew 13 and verse 11, it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. So today I want to cover, first of all, a brief look at the world's mysteries and then how God reveals mysteries to us. And then we'll discuss briefly seven New Testament mysteries and conclude with our responsibility toward those mysteries. Though many of us are intrigued with mysteries, I used to enjoy watching Sherlock Holmes and his assistant Watson, uh, who would solve the greatest of criminal mysteries. Even today, CBS has a program, 48 Hours, which is a popular mystery program. Uh, Mr. Rod McNair was telling us the other day that there are mystery spots around the country. I've not. How many of you have been to a mystery spot around the country? Oh, three of you have. Uh, apparently, one of these mystery spots has a room called the Ames Room. It was uh, designed by an ophthalmologist named Adelbert Ames in 1934. 
the room is used as an optical illusion in which it appears that a ball actually rolls uphill and small people become giants as they walk within that room. I've seen it at least on television. So there are mystery spots. Dr. Meredith has referred to a popular song of the 1930s sung by Nelson Eddy and Jeanette McDonald. The song was popularized in 1931. Ah, sweet mystery of life. He can sing it better than I, so I won't attempt. But ah, sweet mystery of life, I found you. At last I found you. Ah, at last I know the secret of it all. All the longing, seeking, striving, waiting, yearning, the burning hopes, the joy, and idle tears that fall. It's a love song composed by Victor Herbert, and it premiered on Broadway in 1910. Just yesterday, I believe it was, or the day before, I received the latest National Geographic magazine, February 2009, with the feature article, What Darwin Didn't Know. I'll just quote from the article. This year marks the 150th anniversary of the most incendiary book in the history of science, and coincidentally the 200th birthday of the mild-mannered Englishman who wrote it. Charles Darwin did not invent the idea of evolution any more than Abraham Lincoln, who happens to share his birthday on February 12th, invented the idea of freedom. What Darwin provided in The Origin of Species was a powerful theory for how evolution could occur through purely natural forces, liberating scientists to explore the glorious complexity of life rather than merely accept it as an impenetrable mystery. Nothing in biology makes sense except in the light of evolution, and the geneticist Theodosius Dobzhansky wrote 36 years ago. That light, which began as a glimmer in the mind of a young naturalist aboard uh, HMS Beagle, today casts a beam so bright we can read the very text of life by it. Darwin would be overjoyed to see how much he did not know and how much we have yet to learn. Did you get anything false uh, from that message? Evolutionists in this case falsely claim credit for what scientists have discovered about DNA and the laws of physical life. Evolution is not a science and it's an unproven theory. Evolution did not discover these marvelous mechanisms that God created in animals, plants, and in humans. True science has discovered them. If you want more evidence on the false claims of evolutionists, you can go on our Tomorrow's World website, and some of these sources will help you. Dr. Jeffrey Falls' commentaries on evolution takes a major hit. Very interesting commentary. And Dr. Falls' commentary, Evolution, a Religion and he demonstrates how it is a blind faith. Then we have Mr. John O'Gwin's Tomorrow's World telecast, Was Darwin Wrong? And Tomorrow's World magazine article you can find on our website, Evolution, Fact, or Fiction. Then, of course, there are numerous insights on evolution in Dr. Douglas Winnale's booklet, The Real God, Proofs and Promises. There are other worldly mysteries and, and secrets, and uh, even though evolution claims to have discovered uh, the impenetrable mystery, it has not. But science has found the mechanisms that God created in life. The Discovery uh, Channel uh, presented recently, I saw a section of the Ten Commandments of the Mafia. And one program uh, segment uh, portrayed the secret initiation of Mafia members. If an individual is approved by the five family uh, ruling families, they had an initiation. They cut the individual's hand, and he affirmed total commitment. There are other secret societies. The Da Vinci Code featured uh, mysteries reflecting the Templars and the Priori of Sion, uh, as well as, of course, in that book and movie, which I saw part of recently on television, a blasphemous theme. If you want to know more about that, read Dr. Meredith's article, The Two Babylons, commenting on the Da Vinci Code that was in the May-June 2004 Tomorrow's World magazine. And, of course, you can read that on the web. And, of course, Dr. Winnale's uh, article, November-December 2006, The Pagan Revival, which shows, again, many of these mystery cults are starting to grow. Teenagers are beginning to participate, participate more in these mysterious and secret cults. Let's turn to Revelation, the 
17th chapter. There are mysteries that we must reject. And here the 17th chapter of Revelation introduces one of those great false mysteries. Here John, in vision, sees this woman, verse 4, arrayed in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead is a name written, Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. So who is this woman? She, we read in verse 7, the angel says, Why did you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. If you want to know the answer, of course, you can read our booklet by Mr. John O'Gwyn, The Beast of Revelation, Myth, Metaphor, or Soon Coming Reality. He says in chapter 1, the book of Daniel, key to an ancient mystery. I'll just quote, uh, give you one quote from his booklet. Here we find pictured another beast with seven heads and ten horns, referring to the beast here in Revelation 17. This creature is different from that of Daniel 7 and Revelation 13. It is written by a woman, symbolizing a religious organization labeled Mystery Babylon the Great. In other words, it is a perpetuation of the old Babylonian mystery religion, now grown great and powerful. Some of our brethren have been deceived by such systems. And God gives us a warning, and I want to make sure that it's clear and plain to all of us here today, even though we've given, been given, given that warning before, Revelation 18 and verse 4. I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins and lest you receive of her plagues. The false religion, religious system is still with us today. As Mr. O'Gwyn wrote, It is a perpetuation of the old Babylonian mystery religion, now grown great and powerful. Turn to Second Thessalonians, the second chapter. Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins and receive of her plagues. Second Thessalonians, the second chapter. This warns us also of a rebellion, an apostasy, a falling away. And we've seen that happen in our modern era, where brethren in the church of God who seemingly knew the truth and knew about God's way of life, and yet rebelled, fell away, and started keeping the Babylonian false Christianity. Second Thessalonians, the second chapter. Here in uh, chapter 2, he warns us about this uh, apostasy, Second Thessalonians uh, Chapter 2, now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. And of course, the Apostle Paul was thinking that he might live right until the day that Christ would return, from 1 Thessalonians 4. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. And so the apostasy began in the Apostle Paul's day, and it's still with us today. Who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God, or that is worship, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. That is yet to come, because Christ says that he will destroy that lawless one in verse 8. But notice he goes on to say, Do you not remember that when I was with you? I told you these things, verse 6, And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who is now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And then, of course, the final um, duality, the final uh, antitype occurs at the end time. 
Will more Church of God members fall away? Uh, Jesus warns that warns Laodiceans in Revelation, the third chapter, to repent and be zealous. And it appears that Christ will reject the majority of lukewarm Christians because he says in Revelation 3, verse 15, I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish that you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. He's talking to the church of God. Yes, there will be more falling away. There will be more rebellion. In fact, the word uh, rebellion instead of falling away appears in the NRSV and the NIV. That day will not come unless the rebellion comes first or the falling away comes first. So, brethren, we need to take warning of Satan's counterfeit Christianity. And again, I encourage you to reread Dr. Meredith's booklet by that title. Dr. Meredith says in his booklet, or concludes the booklet this way, he says, In this booklet, we have briefly demonstrated that virtually all religions have originated from Babylon. The Oriental and African religions have many of the same pagan and false concepts of God and salvation, developed from the original worship of Nimrod and his harlot wife Semiramis. Professing Christianity is massively influenced and diluted by these pagan concepts. Then he quotes from a book called The Story of Civilization um, that uh, Will Durant uh, wrote and is quite uh, popular. I think we've given this quote in telecasts and in several articles, but it's a very telling historic commentary on Christianity. This is from The Story of Civilization, Volume 5, by Will Durant, pages 595 and 599. Quote, Christianity did not destroy paganism, it adopted it. Perhaps you could all memorize that particular quote, a quotable quote. The Greek mind dying came to a transmigrated life in the theology and liturgy of the church. The Greek language, having reigned for centuries over philosophy, became the vehicle of Christian literature and ritual. The Greek mysteries passed down into the impressive mystery of the Mass. Christianity was the last great creation of the ancient pagan world. The Eucharist was a conception long sanctified by time. The pagan mind needed no schooling to receive it. By embodying the mystery of the Mass, Christianity became the last and greatest of the mystery religions. End of quote. That's by Will Durant from the book, The Story of Civilization. Pagan mystery systems have influenced traditional Christianity, so much so that it has become an incredible counterfeit. And you can further research that subject by reading Dr. C. Paul Meredith's book, Satan's Great Deception. I was looking for it online last night and found that uh, Plain Truth Magazine excerpts of his book can be found on the Internet. And, of course, I've referred this book to you before. I read uh, quotes from it in the last sermon, uh, Pagan Christianity, uh, end of quote, by uh, Frank Viola and George Barna. And again, showing how paganism just permeates traditional Christianity. So, again, uh, be sure to reread uh, Dr. Meredith's booklet, Satan's Counterfeit Christianity, and, of course, the telecast tomorrow or Monday night when my wife and I often see it, uh, The Antichrist is Coming Soon by Dr. Meredith. So I hope you see that telecast. So, brethren, we need to reject these mystery systems, these mystery relig religions, and we need to come out of that system if any of us are involved in it. And we must always maintain a repentant and zealous attitude, as Jesus tells his people in Revelation 3.19, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Let's turn to Mark, uh, the fourth chapter, Mark 4. We just uh, discussed some of the world's mystery systems. Now, how does God reveal his mysteries to his people? Mark, the fourth chapter, verse 10. This is the parallel to the... section we read in Matthew 13, 
Of course, Matthew uses the expression the kingdom of heaven, whereas Mark and Luke use the expression the kingdom of God. And so this is Mark, the fourth chapter, starting with verse 10. But when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parable. He said to them, To you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, but to those who are outside, all things come in parables. So it's a mystery to them, and yet God gives us understanding of his mysteries. The word mystery, and I'm reading here from the New Unger's Bible Dictionary, the Greek is musterion, M-U-S-T-E-R-I-O-N. Quote, the New Testament use of the term mystery as reference to some operation or plan of God hitherto unrevealed. It does not carry the idea of a secret to be withheld, but one to be published. Paul uses the word 21 times. The term mystery, moreover, comprehends not only a previous, previously hidden truth presented, presently divulged, but one that contains a supernatural element that still remains in spite of the revelation. Let's turn to John, the 8th chapter, John 8. So the term mystery has reference to some operation or plan of God hitherto unrevealed. When Jesus came, he revealed those mysteries to his disciples. And he gave us this encouraging comment, of course, in John 8 and verse 32. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Of course, how do we know the truth? Verse 31 gives us the answer. He said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. So you must abide in his word. It must be a part of your thinking, a part of your character, a part of your very nature. Let's turn to Ephesians, the first chapter, Ephesians 1. As we look forward to the Passover, we need to meditate on Christ's sacrifice, who shed blood for our sins. But God gives us understanding of his mysteries. Ephesians 1 and verse 7. In him, that is in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. Ephesians 1, 7. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will. So God has revealed his will to us from Genesis to Revelation. And we seek to do God's will. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we pray according to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are in earth. So God has made known to us the mystery of his will. How can we understand more of God's mysteries? Well, the very book of Revelation gives us understanding of hidden mysteries and prophecies, Revelation 1 and verse 20, most of you old-timers already know this principle. Revelation 1 and verse 20, uh, John sees this vision of uh, stars and candlesticks, but Jesus says, look, you can understand this mystery. Verse 20 of Revelation 1, the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, colon. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. So Jesus himself reveals mysteries. And of course, that one principle, the Bible interprets the Bible, is one of the keys to understanding prophecy. And that's in our telecast, which you saw a couple weeks ago, Keys to Understanding Prophecy. And it's also one of the keys in the booklet, Revelation, The Mystery Unveiled. How many of you have read the booklet, The Mystery, Revelation, The Mystery Unveiled? You see your hands. Okay, very good. Uh, 97.3%. So the other uh, 2.7% need to read the booklet. But let me give you a test on that booklet since you've read it. Uh, Mr. O'Gwin in that booklet presents... Seven keys to understanding. One of those keys is the Bible interprets its own symbol. 
What are the other six keys? Okay. Uh, you can uh, think about that one later. Look up the answers in the booklet. <clears throat> okay. But God does give us understanding of his mysteries. And I, in the Protestant church, when I was around 22, 23, was interested in understanding the book of Revelation. And I asked my Protestant minister, and he gave me some very unsatisfactory, some ambiguous answer. But I kept pressing the point, and he said, all right, uh, I'll let you borrow my Jameson Fawcett Brown commentary. You read it, and then it will explain about the book of Revelation. So I procrastinated as usual, but I started reading through it, and then got to Revelation, the sixth chapter, and it's trying to explain the first horseman, the white horseman. Who is this white horseman? The commentary said it's Jesus Christ, which is false. It's a false Christ, because Jesus himself interprets that in Matthew 24, Mark 13, and Luke 21. So I didn't have to read the commentary any further, and finally returned it to uh, the pastor, and told him, of course, that I was leaving. He said, well, why are you leaving? I said, well, when you find the truth, you go after it. He said, oh, the pearl of great price. I said, yes. I think God inspired him to say that. But uh, I had loaned him my booklets, The True History of the True Church, and so forth, and I wanted those back. And um, the booklet on the key to the book of Revelation, Revelation Unveiled. I said, what did you think about that? Well, think about these booklets explaining the end of the world, World War III, and the whole future of mankind and the history of God's plan, the future of God's plan. What do you think about that? Well, it's all very interesting, but it leaves out the poetry. Leaves out the poetry. Well, you can meditate on that one for some time. (laughs) But God gave us understanding of the book of Revelation. He even says here in Revelation 1 and verse 1, the revelation, not the hiding, but the revealing, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to hide, no, to show his servants things which must shortly take place. And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John. So God has demonstrated to us, he's shown us these mysteries. And we can be very thankful that we understand the book of Revelation because Christ is the revelator, and he's the one who uh, reveals those sequence of events, the four horsemen, as he does in Revelation 24. And uh, again, we understand the end of the story, what happens in the end. Let's turn to uh, Revelation, I'm sorry, Romans 16:25. So God reveals mysteries to us. We can be very thankful for that. And there are how many? Thousands, tens of thousands of priests and ministers and uh, scholars who do not understand what you understand about the book of Revelation. Very plain, very clear. Well, we don't understand every jot and tittle yet. God will reveal it. But we understand the basics. Romans, the 16th chapter, at the very end of the uh, epistle, and verse 25. Romans 16 and verse 25. Now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, According to the revelation of the mystery, kept secret since the world began. Remember when Adam and Eve decided to take of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, rather than the tree of life, they were deceived. They could not have the opportunity. God closed up the tree of life. And we'll see later on that God has opened that tree of life to select few, those whom he is calling the first fruits. And he's going to open up that tree of life at the seventh trumpet. When Christ returns, the millennium comes, and we will be a part of Christ's kingdom, teaching the nations the way of life, the truth, and reveal to them the mysteries that have been hidden. But now made manifest, he said, according to the revelation of the mystery kept secret since the world began, verse 26, but now made manifest, and by the prophetic scriptures made known to all nations, according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith, to God alone wise be glory through Jesus Christ forever. 
So we are witnessing to the world, to all nations, the coming kingdom of God. They do not understand every facet of it, but there are members of God's, the body of Christ that God is calling from all nations, that he is revealing the full mysteries to. So God has revealed great mysteries to and secrets to his people. In 1985, I was teaching the Biblical Doctrines class at Ambassador College in Pasadena. At the beginning of the semester in September 1985, Mr. Herbert Armstrong introduced his book in my class. It's called Mystery of the Ages. How many of you have read the book Mystery of the Ages? Okay, a little less than before, about 88.5%, so again, 11.5%. Of you need to read the book. It's The Mystery of the Ages by Herbert W. Armstrong. It is the second textbook in my class, which I'm teaching now for Living University on Introduction to Biblical Doctrines. It's THL 250 is the class. So it was the basic textbook for that class at Ambassador College. And it covers seven mysteries. Who and what is God? Mystery of angels and evil spirits the mystery of man, the mystery of civilization, mystery of Israel, mystery of the church, and mystery of the kingdom of God. This is what he writes on page 3. Who and what is God? That is a mystery not understood by any religion, not explained by science, untaught by higher education. The intellectually vain originators of the evolutionary theory found the existence of God, as presented by religion, a mystery they could neither understand nor accept. But the religionists whom they rejected did not themselves understand the mystery of God. Yet God does reveal himself through his word, the Holy Bible, if these religionists would only believe God's own revelation. God reveals himself in his word, the Holy Bible. Yet almost none has understood it. The Bible, as author Bruce Barton said, is, quote, the book that nobody knows, end of quote. The Bible itself is the basic mystery that reveals all other mysteries. That's on page 3 of Mystery of the Ages. Page 12, just read one quote here. Such basic truths are revealed, not thought out in any human mind. They come from God, not man. And in all biblically recorded cases, the initiative was God's. Let me turn to 1 Corinthians, the, well, second chapter. I guess we're there already. 1 Corinthians, the second chapter. And starting with uh, verse 6. I'm sorry, chapter 2. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 6. However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature, yet not the wisdom of this age, nor of the rulers of this age, who are coming to nothing. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages for our glory, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for had they known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. And of course, our former association that apostatized, so you can't know God. You know, he's so immutable, so infinite, you can't know him. But what does this say? But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit, verse 10, for the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. We are privileged to know deep, mysteries of God, deep truths. And others are blinded because they are disobeying God. It's only a good understanding of they that keep his commandments. I might just say in passing that I hope that you will, uh, if you haven't read this book, that you will read it. And I uh, checked. It is available online. Uh, Amazon.com has 270 copies available, uh, some in paperback for only one cent. Uh, but the shipping is $3.99. So uh, you can get uh, paperback up to about $10 for uh, hardbound copies of Mystery of the Ages. There are other online services that will provide it as well 
if you do not have a copy. But I do recommend that you read it. So God does give us the gift of truth. He reveals to his servants mysteries that are hidden from the world. And we saw how he reveals those mysteries right here in 1 Corinthians 2, by his Spirit. But God has revealed them to us through his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. Well, let's now go on to seven mysteries in the New Testament. Of course, there are many more, but uh, for the time we have, I'll try to squeeze in seven of them. And these are uh, not the same seven in the mystery of the ages, so, but some of them will overlap. Let's turn to Luke, the eighth chapter, Luke 8. And again, this is the uh, parallel to what we read in Matthew and in Mark. Luke, the eighth chapter, and starting in verse 9. Luke 8 and verse 9. Repetition is one of the strongest forms of emphasis, so perhaps by the end of the sermon you will realize that God has given you an understanding of the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Luke 8 and uh, verse 9. His disciples asked him, what does this parable mean? Verse 10, Luke 8. To you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is given in parables, that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. So most of the world is deceived about the kingdom of heaven. So the first of seven mysteries we briefly discussed is the mystery of the kingdom of God. Most of the world thinks that uh, you go to heaven when you die. And they think perhaps the kingdom of God is the church or the kingdom of God is within you. Uh, they don't know what the kingdom of God is. In our upcoming uh, March, April, Tomorrow's World magazine, Dr. Meredith's feature article is, God's kingdom is a real government. And you've heard many sermons on that topic. But in the future, thousands of true Christian saints are going to be born into that kingdom. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter. 1 Corinthians 15, you know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. We are born again into the kingdom of heaven the same way Jesus Christ was born again by a resurrection from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. If you're flesh and blood, you have not inherited the kingdom. But we will inherit at the last trumpet, as it goes on to say. Well, I actually am skipping ahead here. Uh, verse 51, I'll tell you a mystery. We'll get to that one a little later. That's down the line. But Christ is going to rule on earth as King of kings and Lord of lords. And we understand this mystery very well. Why? Because we keep the annual festivals and holy days. The Feast of Tabernacles illustrates and portrays and gives a... a a foretaste of tomorrow's world, the 1,000 years of Christ's reign on that earth, on earth. And he also gave a vision, of course, in Matthew 17 to Peter, James, and John. And there was Jesus glorified, speaking to Moses and Elijah. And Peter said, Level, Lord, make us, uh, we'll make you three tabernacles and so forth. So it was a vision of the kingdom. We need to keep that vision in mind and always pray. Matthew 6.33, no, seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We preach the coming kingdom as our primary mission. It has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. So mystery number one is God has revealed to us the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. And while we're right there, then we go on to mystery number two, 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. He reveals to us the mystery of the resurrection. And, of course, the Apostle Paul thought that he might still be alive at that point in time. And uh, many of us, we hope, will still be alive, when physically alive when Christ comes. And if so, he says, at the last trump, trumpet, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised incorruptible. And we shall be changed, for this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. And so he says, thanks be to God, verse 57, 
who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So God reveals to us the mystery of the resurrection. And the March-April Tomorrow's World magazine article uh, by Mr. Rod McNair, The Sign of Jonah, a very good article. Uh, Mrs. Prejean has made a, a chart that shows the three days and three nights. Uh, that was the first telecast that I did for the world tomorrow back in 1986 after Mr. Um, Armstrong's death. And uh, I think about the third or fourth sentence out of my mouth was that Christians are denying the very sign of Jesus' messiahship. And then uh, one of the men at legal later on said, well, you know, uh, you're not being loved very much by those in the audience, so we'll see. He said, uh, you're, you're in danger. Well, we speak the truth boldly, and that's another point we'll get into later. Let's turn to Romans, the first chapter, Romans 1. Because here we find, as I just referred to, how we are born into the kingdom of God. Jesus was the pioneer. He's the firstborn of many brethren. Romans 1. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh. Now notice this, verse 4, Romans 1 and declared to be the Son of God with power, how? According to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. And so we are born again by the resurrection from the dead, as we just read in 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection chapter, and of course 1 Thessalonians 4 is another chapter giving us understanding of the resurrection. So mystery number two, God has revealed to us the mystery of the resurrection. Number three is the mystery of the body of Christ. Let's turn to Galatians, the third chapter. Galatians, the third chapter. And starting with uh, verse 26. Galatians 3 and verse 26. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you all are one in Jesus Christ. And if you are Christ's, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. You know, when I first coming into the church, I wondered, well, am I, am I a, a descendant of uh, Israel or... Uh, or am I a descendant of the Jews? And I thought, well, I, when I read this verse, I had all worries dissipated because he said, if you are Christ's, then are you Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So it didn't matter what my genealogy was. We have that promise that we are heirs of that same promise. Turn to, and uh, well, just over the page, if you haven't got it marked, Galatians 6.16, just so you uh, circle the expression. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. The church is called the Israel of God. Turn to Ephesians, the third chapter. We should have started with that because uh, Galatians is explaining Ephesians, the third chapter. But Ephesians 3, uh, starting with verse 1. Even the subhead is titled, The Mystery Revealed. Ephesians 3, verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles. He was in prison when he wrote this. If indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to, you, to me for you, how that by revelation he has made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which when you read you may understand my knowledge, in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power. 
So he said, he has made known to me the mystery. And, of course, the Apostle Paul was passing that mystery on to them. That is the mystery of the body of Christ, that we are all baptized into one body. That's 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12. By one spirit are we all baptized into one body. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. So, number three, God has revealed to us the mystery of the body of Christ. Number four, God has revealed to us the mystery of our marriage to Christ. Right here in Ephesians 4, just turn over the page to Ephesians 5 and uh, verse 28. Ephesians 5, uh, verse 28. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, and of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Again, quoted from Genesis 2 and uh, Genesis, the second chapter. Verse 32, underline and mark this, this is a great mystery. You understand mysteries that the world does not. But I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each of you in particular so love his own wife as himself. Let the wife see that she respects her husband. The very marriage institution is a reflection, the symbolic of Christ and the church. And it is a mystery that is deep, as he said. This is a great mystery. And so we husbands, of course, need to have more of the mind of Christ and realize, how does Christ love the church? How did he love the church? He loved the church and gave himself for it. And he cleanses it with the washing of the water by the word. Then I won't turn there, but uh, Revelation 19.7, the mystery of the marriage, the church is the bride of Christ. He says, let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. So number four, God has revealed to us the mystery of our marriage to Christ. Number five is the mystery of Israel's spiritual blindness. Turn to Romans 11. Romans 11. And, of course, we comment on this section when we're talking about, is this the only day of salvation? Because if this is the only day of salvation, then God has condemned Israel to spiritual blindness and, therefore, to the mythical burning in hell forever. They wouldn't even have a chance. Why does God spiritually blind some and not others? Romans 11 and verse 25. Romans 11, verse 25. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery. Yes, the mystery of Israel's spiritual blindness. Lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved as it is written. Again, this is after Christ's crucifixion, death, and resurrection. The Deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Of course, that will happen during the millennium, and of course, during the white throne judgment, when all Israel will be saved. And of course, Ezekiel, the 37th chapter, shows the valley of dry bones, the physical resurrection that will take place in the white throne judgment. So we have that understanding. We thank God that those who are spiritually blinded. Why did he blind them? So that he could save them later. They will be saved later. As it says, the deliverer will come out of Zion. So we look forward to the white throne judgment. We look forward to the last great day. Number five, God has revealed to us the mystery of Israel's spiritual blindness. Number six is the mystery of godliness. First Timothy 3 and verse 16. 1 Timothy 3 and verse 16. Some of Dr. Meredith's tea here.
I think they prepared it for me this time. 1 Timothy 3, verse 16. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. And so he explains what that mystery is. God was manifested in the flesh. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. John, the first chapter. The Logos. Justified in the Spirit. Seen by angels. Preached among the Gentiles, of course, which... Paul was doing at that time, believed on in the world, received up in glory. How are we made godly? This is the mystery of godliness. Well, of course, we are made godly when we repent, Acts 2.38, and are baptized and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And Romans 5, verses 5 through 10, show that we are saved by Christ's life. And we understand how we become more godly. For turn to First Peter, the first chapter, First Peter one, because we keep the Passover, the Christian Passover, and the days of unleavened bread. It show that we must grow, we must overcome, we've got to conquer self, Satan, and society. And God gives us the power to do that through His Holy Spirit. First Peter one and verse thirteen. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest in your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust in your ignorance, but as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. We're not perfect, but we have the attitude, if we're committed, we have the attitude of holiness. We have the attitude that we want to be like God, that we want to overcome, that we want to change. We don't want to continue to give in to our tempting human nature and other temptations around us. We want the victory. We want to conquer. How do we participate in godliness? By God giving us His Spirit, and we strive to be holy as He is holy and by renewing God's Spirit daily, every day. Number six, God has revealed to us the mystery of godliness. Number seven is the mystery of the gospel. Now, it sounds like it's the same as the mystery of the kingdom of heaven at the beginning, but it's a little different exception and uh, permutation here of this principle. Colossians, the first chapter. And starting with uh, verse 24. Colossians 1, verse 24. I now rejoice in my sufferings for you, writes Paul, and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. Who is a saint? Something that a church organization confirms and says it's this person has done miracles and deeds and now is in heaven? No, a saint is one who has God's Holy Spirit. That defines what a saint is. Those who have God's Holy Spirit are saints. He says, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Yes, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Let's turn to First uh, John, the third chapter. How does Christ live in you? Well, before we go there, one of my favorite verses, I don't want to pass over it while we're here, uh, Colossians 2, verse 6, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. So throughout the New Testament, through the book of John in particular, and throughout Paul's epistles, you find this concept that you walk in Christ, you walk in God, you abide in God. As Mr. Meredith brought out in his sermon two weeks ago on, do you have a profound relationship with Jesus Christ? And he turned to John, the 15th chapter, and Jesus said, Abide in me, 
and I in you. Because without me, you can do nothing. And you find that concept many times throughout the New Testament. Let's turn, um, so we walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it, that is in the faith, with thanksgiving. So we must walk in Christ. Let's turn to uh, 1 John, the third chapter, 1 John 3. So how does Christ live in us? You know Galatians 2.20 because you've heard Mr. Meredith uh, recite it so many times. I'm sure you've absorbed it by now. I hope you have. I am crucified with Christ. You think about just each of those phrases in Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. And you see those pictures of nails driven into the individual's hands and into his feet. And you understand what crucifixion means spiritually. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, not faith in the Son of God as in the New King James, but faith of the Son of God as in the authorized or King James Version, who loved me. When you just meditate on that one phrase alone, who loved me, the Apostle Paul says. Christ hasn't given up loving any of us either because God has unconditional love which we ourselves must radiate to others. Who loved me and gave himself for me. So as we approach the Passover, we need to examine our relationship with God and Christ and again perhaps review our notes of Dr. Meredith's sermon two weeks ago. But how does Christ live in us? How do you know? whether Christ lives in you or not. 1 John 3 and verse 24 gives the answer. 1 John 3, verse 24. Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him, that abides in God, and he, God, abides in him, the Christian. Again, it's capitalized pronouns here in the New King James Version, so you can sort it out. And by this we know, how do we know? that he abides in us by the Spirit which he has given us, according to the King James Version, whom he has given us in the New King James Version. By God's Spirit, that's how Christ abides in us. And that's how we abide in him. And I want to give you an assignment to read slowly through the book of 1 John. In the sermon I gave on unconditional love, I encourage you to do that. But notice there are two themes, there are more than two themes, but... Think about these two themes as you read through 1 John slowly. The love of God, how unconditional it is and what it is, that this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. But also note the other theme, how God abides in us and we in Him. And I haven't gone through it. I was intending to go ahead and mark and highlight every instances in 1 John where it says he abides in us and we in him, because it's repeated often. For example, chapter 4, verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his Spirit. Just as we read <clears throat> chapter 3 and verse 24. So, number 7, God has revealed to us the mystery of the gospel, which is Christ in us, the hope of glory. What is our responsibility toward God's ministry? The Apostle Paul realized he had a great responsibility towards the mysteries of God. 1 Corinthians, the fourth chapter. 1 Corinthians, the fourth chapter. Now, we're not all apostles. None of us is an apostle that we know of. God will reveal that in time to come. Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ, 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 1, and stewards of the mysteries of God. The Apostle Paul, in a sense, was defending his apostleship. And he's saying, look, God has given us the responsibility as stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. But with me, 
It is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by a human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. So the Apostle Paul is saying that he is a steward of the mysteries of God. Ephesians, the sixth chapter, Ephesians 6. We also have that responsibility because, as Jesus said, he's not revealed the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven to those outside. Ephesians, the sixth chapter. And we know this section as the whole armor of God. How many elements of the armor are there? Six elements. However, there's a seventh element that the Apostle Paul writes here after he talks about our loins girt about by truth, the breastplate of righteousness, our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith, and the sword of the Spirit. What comes next? Ephesians 6 and verse 17. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Verse 18, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. So while I pray for the armor of God, I also pray for the ministry that the gospel can go out. The mystery of the gospel can be preached to the whole world. And I know that you do pray, and I hope that we all will continue to pray for open doors, that uh, the gospel will be going out even greater power. But he says, pray that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. So Christ has given us the great commission to preach the gospel. We need to pray for more open doors, pray for Dr. Meredith and the ministry to publish and preach the gospel boldly. Now, what do all these mysteries lead to? These mysteries of God reveal God's plan of salvation for all humanity. We know that the annual festivals and holy days give us an understanding of that plan. And we look forward to the completion of that plan. Turn to Revelation, the 10th chapter. As a part of these mysteries, we look forward to the seventh trumpet. Revelation, the 10th chapter, and verse 5. Part of God's plan and part of the mysteries of God will be completed at the seventh trumpet. Revelation 10 and verse 5. The, the Apostle John writes, The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it, not evolution, that there should be delay no longer, but in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound the mystery of God would be finished, as he declared to his servants the prophets. So what happens when the seventh angel sounds his trumpet? Do you know the answer? Just over the page, verse 15, Then the seventh angel sounded, 11.15, And the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. The seventh trumpet announces a new world government, a new world order. The first resurrection takes place. Those sleeping in the graves will be resurrected. Ancient King David, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then Moses and Elijah, and all the faithful women and men of Hebrews, the 11th chapter, and our faithful brethren and friends and family who have died in recent years. The prophecies of the second coming will be fulfilled. The tree of life that's been closed to humanity since the time of Adam and Eve will be open to all humanity. 
The millennium will begin with Christ and the royal family of God governing the nations to bring it world peace and prosperity. So we look forward to that time when that seventh trumpet sounds. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter, as a final warning to us. 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter. God has given us understanding. The Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. God has revealed us great mysteries, the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, the mysteries of the very body of Christ, the mystery of our marriage to him, the mystery of the resurrection. 1 Corinthians, the 13th chapter, we have the warning about all of the gifts that were given to the Corinthian church, listed in chapter 12. And then the greatest gift here in 1 Corinthians 13, Though I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could move mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Does that mean that God doesn't want us to have knowledge? He doesn't want us to have faith? He doesn't want us to understand mysteries? No, He wants us. He's given us the gift of understanding. But primarily, we need to make sure that we do not let those gifts go to our heads, as Paul was warning the Corinthian church, and that we modify all of our understanding with God's unconditional love. That love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, as it says in Romans 5 and verse 5. So God wants us to understand his mysteries, but we must live the principles revealed by those mysteries. We must live our lives practicing agape love. We must live our lives practicing unconditional love, as we heard in a previous sermon. Jesus told his disciples, it has been given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Today we've discussed several mysteries of God. Again, I want to encourage you to read Mr. Armstrong's book, The Mystery of the Ages. We thank God for the great revelation of his mysteries. God has revealed to us, as we discuss today, the mystery of the kingdom of God, the mystery of the resurrection, the mystery of the body of Christ, the mystery of our marriage to Christ, the mystery of Israel's spiritual blindness, the mystery of godliness, and the mystery of the gospel, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So, brethren, will you hold fast to the word of God and God's way of life? Or will you give in to one of these false mystery systems in the future? Will you be faithful stewards of God's truth and the mysteries of God?